All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Question in the front. No, just kidding. All right, how are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, we are... Well, there you go. All right, all right. I'm glad we're here. A um, uh, couple things I just want to... Uh, share with you sort of what this place is about. If you've never been here before, or this is new to you, or you stumbled across this online, um, we're a very unique church. Um, and we say that with a lot of humility because we, we really, we're weird and we know it and it's okay. Um, we are a bunch of people that are relatively messed up on our best day. Um, and here's the reason I say this. It bothers people that I keep saying we're messed up, but I wanna explain it because somebody asked me this week. Here's the deal. The closer you get to the holiness of God, the more messed up you realize you are. Amen. Right? So, so we don't compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to the holiness of God. That's our standard, right? That's our, that's our goal. And we've talked about, you know, when we draw near to God, we begin to realize our condition and our need to be saved. And so I think a lot of people have sort of deceived themselves into thinking that they're somehow a little more holy than they really are, let's just say. But we, we draw near to God, and the closer we get to God, the more we realize how desperately we need him, and the more we realize how incredible his holiness is. And we've been in this series for the last week about, you know, how do we connect with God? How do we pray? And a lot of people go, oh, great, here's another sermon on prayer. It's, listen, I just want to explain that as I study the Bible, and I look at the people in the first century, those who were within 60 years of the crucifixion, the first century. When I look at those people, they prayed differently than we pray. They just do. I mean, they prayed in incredible ways, and somehow we don't pray like that. So this series is trying to help us understand how they prayed and how we might want to think about the way we pray. And the key is, when they prayed, they expected to connect with God. I mean, in a lot of ways, as you think about it, they walked with Jesus, so praying was just simply continuing the conversation. He ascends to heaven, and why would they not talk to him? Why would they not expect him to do things? They'd seen him do miraculous things. They wanted to connect to God. And it turns out we were created to connect with our creator. Praying is simply talking to God. So I thought it might be interesting to learn from those who actually watched Jesus do it. Then one day he's taken up to heaven. The disciples are left on their own. And as we read through the book of Acts, the story of the early church, I'm challenged by the way they prayed. And here's one thing that I think is interesting. Prayer was always their first response, not their last resort. It was their first response because they were desperate to hear from God. They wanted nothing more than to talk to God. What is it that made them a praying church? They were desperate for the presence and power of God in their lives. They were desperate. There was a desperation they had. They'd been in constant communication with Jesus, and now he's in heaven. So they continued that conversation with the Holy Spirit. And over the next few weeks, I want to look at the book of Acts through the lens of prayer. 
Because I think many of us, if we were honest, prayer is not our first response. It's our last resort. We'll read books. We'll talk to counselors. We'll get advice from friends. We'll search the internet. We'll do whatever we have to do to get man's opinion on our issues. And then you ask him, well, have you prayed? And they go, yeah, 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 I prayed, but what do I need to do about this? Have you prayed? Have you spent as much time on your knees as you have searching the internet and trying to find answers on your own or asking people's opinion? Hallelujah. Thank you. Now, you know, here's how you know. I'll tell you how you know. When people come to me with a big issue in their life and they have a sense of calm about it, I know they've prayed. Because calm is not a human response. And I'm not saying like it's not a problem, not whatever, but they have an inner sense of calm, of peace. In that situation, they may not like the situation, it may be a horrible situation, it may be something they can't stand, but they are at, somehow, they found inner peace. They're still concerned, but they're not worried. Other people come, and they're like, yeah, I've prayed, and you can tell they're just all over the place. Well, God tells us, you know, be anxious about nothing and everything with prayer and petition, make your request known to God, and here's the promise, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ. So when people come to me, and I know they've spent a lot of time praying, they come with that peace because it's a promise from God. Be anxious about nothing, pray about everything. And so the disciples in the first century, that they had this way of praying. It was their first response. Acts 1.13, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were devoting themselves. Devoting themselves. Not past time, not when I have time late at night before I fall asleep, not right before my meal. They were devoting themselves to prayer. They prayed constantly. It's a word that separates a church from a praying church. A praying church devotes themselves to prayer. It separates a person who prays from a praying person. Praying people devote themselves to prayer. Many people, if pressed, would say, well, yeah, I pray. But then you ask them, are you a praying person? No, no, I really can't say that I am. I want us to be a praying people. I want prayer to be our first response. I want Remnant to be a praying church, not just a church that prays. The difference lies in devotion, and devotion comes from your heart. But it's hard for a lot of us because of our past. We've learned some things about prayer over the years that may not be totally accurate and we need to rethink our prayer life. We actually need to unlearn some things about prayer. We have this idea that there's a right time to pray. We need to unlearn that. Maybe for you it was before meals or at bedtime or maybe it's in the morning. And as long as we do those prayers, we're okay. Maybe you need to rethink and understand that prayer is something we do all day long. There's a time to pray. A lot of us have been taught the position. Bow your head, close your eyes. 
There's only one problem with that. It's not in Scripture. Reverence, yes. Bowed position, submission to God, yes. But nowhere in Scripture to say to close your eyes. We may have been taught that there's a time to pray and a way to pray. We've created this box and we've kind of shoved prayer into it. It's one of our little tasks that we do every day. But we don't have a box for breathing. We don't have a, heart, a box that says keep your heart beating. Prayer is supposed to be a natural part of the human existence of a follower of Jesus. We say this is how you should pray. We don't get that from Scripture. It's fine to pray before meals and bedtime. I'm not saying that. It's fine to bow your head. It's fine to close your eyes. But I believe that God wants so much for us to experience in our prayer life, and I think we can learn it from the first century. Christ's followers modeled it for us. We asked last week several times, why did they do that? Well, they did that because they saw Jesus doing it. Why do we do it? Because we saw Jesus and them do it. They prayed with their eyes open. Now, I titled this message, Eyes Open. Last week, I taught on hands extended. We talked about how when we pray, there's something about the human touch. There's something about reaching out to other people that, that, that connects with people. We mentioned fasting. I'm going to teach on fasting next week, which is going to be great because we're going right into our monthly meal afterwards. Um, and no, that wasn't accidental. I thought it'd be fun. All right, so, but here's the deal. We're supposed to have a consistent, ongoing, never-ending conversation with God. We're to be a praying people. We're supposed to see things and talk to God about it. This morning I was out walking around the backyard and I look up and there's this beautiful red bird. Like, wow, God, look at that red bird. And I started thinking about, you know, just what's that red bird like think? I mean, it's a red bird. You know, does he notice that he's red? Does he ever talk to God? God, does he know he's red? And I think God a lot of times looks at us like we look at our little two-year-old children when they're asking all the questions, you know. But, but we're to have a conversation with God. We take him everywhere. Start talking to God about the most ridiculous things in your life. And then it won't seem so weird to talk to him about the big things. I mean, if you can talk to God about, does a red bird know he's red, God? Is he jealous of the bluebird? Do they compare each other? I mean, are those things that happen? My prayer is that we'll explore prayer outside of the box and see if we can learn something from those who actually walked with Jesus. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1. Let's start with verse 8, one that we've studied for 32 weeks. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, I suspect the disciples were thinking, and this is also a very fun way to look at Scripture. Always ask yourself, if you were a disciple, what would you be thinking right now? I think the disciples were thinking, hey, that's great. Jesus is going to give us power. He's done that before. He gave us power to cast out demons and diseases when he sent us out last time. This time, he's going to take us around the world. This is great. Jesus had sent them out before, not to the end of the earth. He's probably just exaggerating. Okay, so we'll be going with Jesus outside of Jerusalem to Samaria, to Judea, and beyond. 
Okay. Well, Jesus, if that's where you want to go, we'll go with you. Sure, we'll go to the ends of the earth if you want. You lead us, we'll follow. We'll follow you anywhere. We're all in. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. What? Time out. Where are you going? When's he coming back? We have a trip we're supposed to take. You're going to take us around the world. You're going to lead us. We need him. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. He's going to take us to the ends of the earth. And now he's like, I'm out. They've been given a massive task. They were under-resourced. They were poorly equipped. They weren't even really well-educated. They weren't politically savvy. They had no real connections. They weren't really financed. Not even a good plan, almost no influence anywhere in the world. In fact, the influence they did have was the Jewish church wanting to kill them. They're not even real sure where the end of the earth is. Now their leader, the one who had all the answers, has launched. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I think the Bible's hilarious. I think that when the scriptures, when the angels show up, it's time to start laughing almost every time. It seems that they say the obvious. They pop into someone's life, they totally freak them out, they dazzle them with brilliant light, and then they make less than brilliant statements. Usually like, fear not. Too late. I'm done. But this question is one of the best ever. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Now the Bible doesn't tell us how they answered. But I think it went something like this. What do you mean, why are we looking into heaven? He didn't give us advice. He didn't tell us how we should do it. He just said to do it. We've been following him for three years. He always knew what to do. He's the one that decided where we go. He decided when we go, what we're to do. He's not of this world. He had a connection with the Father. He came back from death. He can overcome anything. We need him. We can't do this without him. I don't know, Mr. Angel, maybe we're looking into the sky because we're scared to death to look at the mission he just gave us for earth. Maybe we're looking into the sky because we need him. We want to be with him. You see, for three long year, days, we thought we'd never see him again. And then he resurrected. And he came back and he's been with us now. We, we thought we'd never be alone. He said he's Emmanuel. He said he's God with us. Where is he? Where did he go? Matthew 28, 20, he said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, Mr. Angel, it's not the end of the age, and he's not here. We've been entrusted with the most important message ever. We have no idea how to do this. This is a God-sized mission. 
We're just little people. We have no idea how to do this. Now our leader's done this skydiving rewind thing. I'm staring into the sky because I can't believe what just happened. And I'm scared to look at what I'm supposed to do. That's why I'm looking into the sky. You see, I'm a little freaked out right now. And you, Mr. Angel, aren't really helping. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. Great, that's the problem. He is not with us. When is Emmanuel coming back? I wonder how long they stayed on that mountain staring into the sky. I wonder who was the first to break. It had to be Peter. (laughs) Staring into the sky before they decided to leave before they took the first step of their God-sized mission without it seemed their God. Imagine walking away from that experience. They'd spend almost every minute of every day with Jesus. They were constantly aware of his presence in their life. Jesus was always there to teach them, to show them wisdom. They couldn't imagine their life before him. As if it was somebody else that lived the early part of their lives. He taught them how to show love. He was love. He provided food. He calmed storms. He guarded them from demons. He told them where to go and what to do. They woke up every day and said, Jesus, what's your agenda today? What are we doing? They'd learned to live in his presence, and now it seemed like he was no longer present. Gone again. They had to be wondering, what do we do now? What am I supposed to do now? Well, fortunately, Jesus had anticipated that problem and had already answered the question. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Interesting that Jesus' message to them was not go. It was stay. Wait. The disciples were told they had to wait. They needed to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Like like all believers, they'd been baptized with water, but Jesus tells them they're soon going to be baptized with the Spirit. And he promised them it would not be many days from now. And that somehow this baptism of the Spirit would bring them power. And then they could go. But he told them essentially, don't walk off this mountain and go on a God-sized mission without God. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the earth. Did you notice that this verse is in future tense? It's a future certainty. Doesn't say you have power. It says you will be receiving power. Then you'll be my witnesses. Don't miss this. It's only after they received the Holy Spirit. It's only after they had God's power that they were equipped to participate in God's mission. 
None of us go on God's mission in and of our own power. We'll fail. And in the meantime, Jesus says, wait. Wait. I can imagine, I always say, okay, Peter is the most impulsive disciple. He's my favorite. I can imagine him saying, wait, wait, wait. I hate waiting. I know this particularly bugged Peter. It's not in scripture, but I know it did. He was so impulsive. You want me to wait? What am I supposed to do now while I'm waiting? What am I supposed to do? There's only one question to that answer, and let me just tell you, the answer is always the same. While you're waiting on God, the answer is prayer. That's it. Pray. But you're going, wait, I need to do something. Prayer is doing something. In fact, unless God has told you to do something else, prayer is the only thing you're supposed to be doing. Way too often, people run ahead of God of their own will and have never prayed or don't pray enough and get involved in things that God hasn't called them to get involved in. The disciples were desperate to be in the presence of Jesus again. They were desperate to receive his power they were desperate to have his guidance, and that desperation, don't miss this, that desperation is what drove them. Let's pick up the story. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. So they returned to Jerusalem to the upper room again. The disciples find themselves back at square one. Back in the upper room. That's where they were when Jesus died and before he resurrected. The first time he left them alone. The first time they were desperate and despondent and didn't know what to do. They hid in the upper room. Now they're right back there again, not that many days later. Same place. Same desperation. Worse now. Now it's happened the second time. They're desperate for answers. They're confused. It seems like they have once again been abandoned by their leader. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing again. Only 40 days ago, Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Now they're headed back into the upper room just like they were the day he was crucified. They're all there together asking the same question. What are we supposed to do now? What are we supposed to do now? Well, these men have been trained by Jesus. For three years, they followed him. What do you do when you're separated from God? How do you stay in the presence of Jesus? How do you stay in the presence of the Holy Spirit? by connecting in prayer. That's exactly what they were desperate to do. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. You see, we read that the first time and that word devotion didn't jump off the page. But now that we understand where they are, they're desperate. 
They devoted themselves to prayer because they were desperate to hear from God. They were all in one accord, not a Honda. Just <laughs> means they were all in unity. Not only were they praying, they were praying for the same thing. It doesn't say that they went up to the upper room and just prayed. They went up to the upper room and devoted themselves to prayer as a group. Jesus, we need you. We need you to be in our presence. We desperately need your guidance. We can't do this without you. Please, Jesus, help us. That's desperation. They devoted themselves, and that's what separated them from us. They had to hear from God. We don't think we do. They were truly desperate for him to tell them what to do. We don't think we are. The early church followers, when faced with uncertainty and confusion and frustration and fear, devoted themselves to prayer. People come to me today. What's going on in our world? Do you see what's going on? There's a pandemic. There's people turning from God. They're trying to shut down the churches. They're trying to shut up the pastors. They're trying to teach blasphemy. It's crazy what's going on in the world. Yeah. We must be really desperate for God right now. We need to pray. How long do you suppose they prayed? Two hours? Maybe a long prayer meeting, maybe an all-nighter. Did they come back the next Sabbath and pray again? Jesus said he'd send the helper spirit in not so many days. How many days did they have to wait? Let's keep reading. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, I've taught before. I don't think this is in the upper room. I believe this is in the temple. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they divided tongues of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We just went over this in the last series. So let's get the timeline straight. Jesus crucified and was resurrection on Passover. Acts 1.3, he presented themselves alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. So Passover, 40 days until he ascends to heaven. Now we're told it's the day of Pentecost. People sometimes freak out when they hear the word Pentecost or Pentecostal. You know what Pentecost means? Five tens. Ooh. That was big 10 years ago. Wow, he's 50. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he's Pentecostal. He's five tens. Pentecost just means 50. It was 50 days after Passover. I know this is like one of those really bad math problems that none of us liked in school. If Jesus died and resurrected at Passover and he ascended on the 40 and he descended on 50, I mean, it's like, ugh. And the upper room was one Sabbath day walk. How long did the disciples pray in the upper room? Somewhere between nine or 10 days. 
They devoted themselves to prayer for nine or 10 days. Sometimes I pray for an hour and I get frustrated that my genie God hasn't answered me yet. They made prayer the most important thing in their lives for 10 straight days. Why? Because they were desperate. They prayed because they had to. They prayed because they were disciples. They were desperate. Did you notice they prayed with their eyes open? They saw tongues of fire descend and fall on each person. It's not a vision they saw. That's what was in the room. When they were praying, the wind started blowing. Of course, they opened their eyes if they were closed. They saw tongues of fire descending. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Their eyes were open. No doubt when the wind started blowing, they were checking it out. But their eyes were open long before that. See, I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking about spiritual eyes. They expected God to do something, so their hearts were looking for it. Their eyes were open when they prayed. You see, not just physically, spiritually, they were open to spiritual things happening. God is going to move. Something incredible is going to happen. I don't want to miss it. You see, I'm praying and I'm desperate and God promised to answer my prayers. I'm looking for the answer. The heart is open. The eyes are wide open. What's God going to do? It's going to be incredible. They were expecting the promises of Jesus to come true. Not just hoping something good might happen. But hear this, they expected the promises of God to actually happen. And we don't. Sorry, we don't. God promised things and they said Jesus promised that it will happen. They expected to be in the presence of Jesus again. He said he was Emmanuel. They expected to receive the Holy Spirit. He told them they would. They expected to receive power. He said they would. It's not a matter of if, it was when. Jesus had said it. He'd promised it. So of course they believed it. They prayed in faith and anticipation. They knew God respond. They knew they needed God to respond. They were desperate for the presence and power of God in order to take their next step in a God-sized mission. They were praying from their heart. Their eyes of their heart were physically and spiritually open to see what was going to happen. Everything in their lives depended on it. They were given an impossible task. Their leader had just been jettisoned into the sky. And Jesus told them they'd receive power. And what they need more than anything else right now is power. And there's a big difference between the way they prayed and the way we pray. They prayed with the eyes of their heart open. They prayed with their spiritual eyes, expecting to see God move. When they prayed, they were waiting to see what God was going to do. We pray with our spiritual eyes closed. We doubt the promises of Jesus. We don't expect him to act. We hope he will. 
Maybe. But we don't persist in prayer until he answers. We're a McDonald's drive through when it comes to our prayer. They prayed full of faith and anticipation. They positioned themselves to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon them. They spoke in tongues. They praised God in languages they did not know. They glorified God in tongues, and people around them from other languages understood the message. And when they received the Holy Spirit, they were transformed and equipped to be a powerful force that the earth couldn't stop. They left the temple that night like a football team leaves their locker room, ready to go conquer the world, knowing they're more powerful than anything comes against them. They prayed, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, and revival broke out. The flames descended upon them that night, and they became a force to be reckoned with that continues today. Their first steps in the Holy Spirit continue to your first step out of this room today. Jesus kept his promise to them. He'll keep his promise to you. And because he sent them the Holy Spirit, they would never again have to live separated from the presence of God. Because God was no longer with them, he's now in them. So what made the first century Christians a praying people? What makes them pray with their eyes open? They were in desperate circumstances. And desperation always drives prayer. Does that surprise you? I mean, when you look out over your life, you've had times when you've been in seasons of prayer. What were the circumstances during those times? Probably not a good season of your life. Probably a time when you were desperate, realized how badly you needed God and knew you couldn't do anything to fix the problem. Desperate times lead to desperate prayers. When we need God's help, we'll pray. But here's the problem. We always need God's help. Always. We're always dependent on God. We just don't recognize it. Our times are desperate. They're more desperate now than they've ever been. Look at the news. You see, our times are desperate. The circumstances are desperate, but we're not. The amazing thing about the American church is how comfortable we are in desperate times. It's like we're walking around a battlefield going, hey, what are y'all doing? What's going on? Oh, there's destruction everywhere. Look at that. Boy, I'm glad I'm in the safety of my church behind those stained glass windows. Huh. You see, the first Christians were a praying people. They had a constant awareness of their need for God and they knew that he had to show up to accomplish what they were told to accomplish. They needed him every day and they knew it. So why aren't we desperate? Same mission they were given has been given to us. Words of Jesus spoke to them have been spoken to us. The task that Jesus gave them has now been given to us. Same Holy Spirit that descended on them has descended upon us. Amen. Same power given to them has been given to us. They prayed with their spiritual eyes open. 
They had a hard time keeping their eyes shut when they prayed because they knew God was going to respond. They didn't want to miss what God was going to do. Is that where you are? Are you so overwhelmed with the mission we've been given? So desperate to be in the presence of Jesus, so desperate for the promised power of the Holy Spirit, and so sure God is going to do something supernatural in your life that you're too excited to pray with your eyes closed. Because you can't wait to see what God's going to do. You see, our eyes need to be open. We're praying in anticipation for what God's already promised. Lifting our voices in unity, devoting ourselves to praying for revival, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon our community. We become desperate for the presence and power of God in our lives. And when these things happen, when our spiritual eyes are truly open, three things happen. First, we see God clearly. When we finally decide to get on his agenda and to get busy doing his work, we begin to see him clearly. When we embrace that God is who he says he is and he'll do what he said he was going to do, we see him clearly, all-powerful, all-knowing, always present, personally engaged, leading a mission, equipping us, giving us power, living in us, living through us, and accomplishing his mission with us, having already accomplished and guaranteed victory. That's who God is. When we begin praying with our eyes open, we expect that God to begin doing his work just like he promised. When we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, we expect to complete the mission of God. Second thing that happens, we begin to see ourselves more clearly. A bunch of sinful, messed up misfits entrusted to carry out a God-sized mission an impossible task, a God-sized task. But if our eyes are open, we see that we're not God. You see, we see ourselves clearly because we realize there's no way we can do this without him. We surrender ourselves to him because we're desperate for him to carry it out. We give to Jesus all that we have. We are living sacrifices, laying down our lives as a form of worship, for whatever purpose God determines is best. We become desperate for the presence of God in our lives and in our church. So when our eyes are open spiritually, we see God more clearly and we see ourselves more clearly. And then the third thing, we see the world more clearly. Everything we see should drive us to pray. Everything. Beautiful sunset. The rhythm of the sound of the ocean waves, waterfalls, still lakes, mountains. Thank you, God. These are incredible. I'm still blown away that water reflects. I think that's the coolest thing God ever did. He made water reflect. How cool is that? God, you're amazing. See a car wreck on the freeway? God, help them. Help their families right now who are finding out something bad happened. Our friends and family, thank you, God, for giving me people who love me. A football game, thank you, God, for smiting those who come against the mighty Longhorns. <laughs> you see, we were wired to connect with God all the time. Many of us go through our lives like this. We pray like this. 
Hurting coworker? Home, home, not homeless. Hurting, lost? No. Hungry, sick? We, we, we don't want to see that because then we have to do something about it. But if we take off the blindfold, our eyes will be open. We'll see the world around us. We'll begin to see hurting people. We'll be able to see what God wants to do through us. You see, when we pray like those in Acts, we see God more clearly, we see ourselves more clearly, and we see the world around us more clearly. Our eyes are open because God wants us to see what he's about to do. Is that where you are today? Same promise God gave his disciples is true for you and me. Are you praying and expecting that God's going to do what he said he'd do? Are you experiencing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life? Is it flowing through you to other people? Are you seeing the world around you the way God wants to see you? Do you have his power? Are you desperate for revival in your own life and in the world around you? Are you expecting the Holy Spirit to be poured out in our community, on people, in our world? Because God has promised it. And yet we walk around in this drudgery of everything's horrible. No, God's promised victory. Let's wait and see when it happens. Let's commit to being not just people that pray, but a praying group of people. Ask God to show you what to pray for. Look around every day. Every time you hear a siren, pray for somebody they need help. Pray for the people responding. They need wisdom and guidance. At a stoplight, read bumper stickers and please pray for the people that are around you. I mean, really, it doesn't take very long. Go to one light. When you watch the news or you read the newspaper, look for things and people to pray for. Pray for our president. Pray for Israel. Pray for our enemies. Pray for those who are hurting. Pray for those in prisons. Pray for those who are caught in scandals. Pray through the news you read every day. Pray through your email and please pray through Facebook. Yes. Amen. Go through your client list and pray for them every day. Pray for your appointments in advance every day. Pray for every new person you meet. If you have a moment, run through the favorites on your phone and pray for them. When someone comes to your mind during the day, that's not an accident. Maybe a person that you haven't thought of for a very long time, out of the blue. Perhaps your spouse or children. Maybe somebody you grew up with. Maybe your friend or somebody comes to church. Decide that the mention of someone's name will drive you to pray for them. And I guarantee you, I'm not gonna I can almost guarantee you that that person came into your mind because God has something he wants you to do. Decide that every time you hear of another country, you're going to pray for that country, that they see revival in Christ. When you get bored at a meeting or during my sermons, <laughs> go around the room and silently pray for each person. Pray for the leaders and the mission that they're on. Pray that the meetings or sermons will not be so boring in the future. Ask God why he put you there just to bore you. Ask God if the problem may actually be you. When you see a family together, pray that they'll stay together. Pray that the mom and dad will be the parents that child needs, that their marriage will be strong, that if they don't know Jesus, they'll 
come to know Jesus as a family, that they'll become a strong family unit. Pray for their children, that they'll know Jesus. Pray that they'll grow closer to him. Spend your day in constant dialogue and prayer, constantly desperate for God to interact. Ask him to open your eyes and see everything around you. Are you ready to open your eyes? I want to take this lesson home and I'll close. I want you to schedule a prayer walk. Do it as a couple, do it with a group, do it by yourself. Parents and grandparents, take what we're learning and teach it. Take your kids, your grandkids, whomever God has placed in your life on a prayer walk. Show them they can learn to pray with their eyes open. Show them that you don't just pray before a meal, you pray all day long. Teach them to pray that God will give them his eyes, that they'll listen and show them your heart. Here's another one that you can try. Uh, and I'm going to say do this only with somebody that you're very close to, preferably a spouse. Takes guts. Pick someone you're close to, pray for them with your eyes open, looking into their eyes. There's a powerful connection that occurs when people pray directly into you. The presence and power of Christ in your relationship, I want to challenge you to try it. Married couples, look into the eyes of your spouse and pray for them. Connect with them. Spend one day this week and just ask the Holy Spirit to give you his eyes for the day. Show you everything he wants you to see. Commit to praying for everything he shows you. Spend your day in constant prayer. We might as well start now. So in the next few minutes, the altar is going to be open. Process these questions with God. Are you desperate to be in the presence of Jesus? Are you desperate to receive more of him? Do you want more of his power? Do you really want to be involved in his mission? Ask him to pour out his spirit on you, to baptize you, to immerse you in the presence and power of the spirit. Just like he did those first century Christ followers. Come to the altar in anticipation of what God's going to do. When you pray, come to the altar with the eyes of your heart open. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you want to interact with us. You want us to pray. You want us to come to you. You want us to recognize that the mission you've given us is actually not our mission. It's way too big. It can only be done with you. You've already promised us victory. You've already promised us the outcome. We're supposed to be living in joy, peace, kindness. God, I think a lot of us don't pray with our eyes open because we really don't trust that you're going to keep your promise. Maybe that's something we need to confess. Maybe we've given up on situations you haven't even started to work on yet. Maybe we prayed for a few minutes and thought that was enough. God, help us to persist in prayers to connect with you with our eyes open and our hands extended. God, in this room right now, we're going to stop. 
We're going to do what they did in the upper room that night, and we're going to pray. So God, I know you're working all over this room. Meet us in this place. Guide us to the next step you have for us. And we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus.